HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Dine in Brooklyn is a 10-day event featuring restaurants in the greatest borough on planet Earth. Learn more at dineinbk.com and discover the best of Brooklyn's restaurants Monday, March 20th through Thursday, March 30th. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Chris Matheson, proprietor and winemaker at Bellwether Wine Cellars. We'll talk to Chris about wine from the Finger Lakes region. We'll talk about Bellwether Wine Cellars and maybe talk a little hard cider too. This is the Finger Lakes Wine Show. Chris is going to school us on the Finger Lakes. We'll also taste the 2014 Bellwether Sawmill Creek Vineyard dry Riesling for our weekly wine sip, and Chris also snuck on the bus a couple other bottles of wine, so we'll be tasting a few other things during the weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Chris Matheson hails from the Finger Lakes wine region of upstate New York. He is the proprietor and winemaker at Bellwether Wine Cellars, producers of critically acclaimed single vineyard Riesling and Pinot Noir, and a few other things we'll talk about. Chris makes wine, allowing for the true expression of Finger Lakes terroir, and he's been called the rock star of the Finger Lakes. Did you know that? Mm-hmm. He also makes a mean cider, which we'll talk a little about. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Chris. Thanks. Listen, before we get into everything, I want to set you up with my listeners. So I want you to tell me a little about your journey in life and in wine and how you got to where you are today, um, which is Bellwether, which is your own winery. But you have a pretty colorful history, you know, in the Finger Lakes with wineries and your family and all that. So, you know, try to get through that. Yeah. um, You know, I never wanted... I never went in wanting to be a winemaker. It kind of just happened. I think growing up in the town I did, which was Hammondsport, set like it's, for me, it's like the most important town in the Finger Lakes for winemaking. Is that like the bone of Burgundy? It, it's like the the place for the Finger Lakes. Yeah, when I grew up there, it was the whole town was based on wine, uh, on you know, sparkling wine and winemaking and vineyards. And as I got a little older, that kind of fell apart, and I didn't realize it when I was growing up, but, you know, you'd wake up in the fall, and you'd smell, like, the grapes being harvested, because it's in it a valley. Little, literally in the air. Yeah, it was literally in the air, and I remember tasting that stuff grow, growing up, and 
going to wineries and being like, why the hell are we going to a winery on a field trip? Like, this doesn't make any sense. And when I got done with high school, I went to a winery because I was like, this might be a good thing for me to be able to talk with my professors about. So your job choices as like a high school student are work at a restaurant on the lake, work as a lifeguard or work in a tasting room or leave or leave basically. Yeah. And, um, so I went right to a winery and said, could I have a job? And I worked in a tasting room for like a week and, um, I was 19 and the next, like two weeks later, the winemaker asked me to like help him move a barrel and like the winery still there. Yeah. So it was Bully Hill, which is like, which has a deep history up there. Yeah. Um, it, which is a significant winery, um, up there. And then he took me in and really liked me and trained me. And so a couple of weeks into yeah. just working like the tasting room in the winery, the guy's got you in the back helping him. Yeah. The guy, um, like I didn't realize at the time, but he changed my life. Like that one little thing completely. That's what. Is he still around? He's still there. His name's Greg Lerner. He's okay. one of the, he's the head winemaker and one of the owners of Bully Hill, I think. And, um, you know, he took me in, made me his assistant winemaker. I worked there for four years throughout college, four and a half years. So the four years you were in college, you worked at Bully Hill? Yeah, I worked at Bully Hill. And you were doing winemaking, assisting, helping, and all of that? Yeah. and Summer times? Summer times. I'd come back for fall. I'd come back on the weekends. I'd come back um, any break. I'd come back. If they, if uh, I was in school, I went to, I went to Utica College of Syracuse, and so anytime there was a tasting... Um, wasn't that far away. It wasn't that far. Or I would be doing, I would do all the like central New York tastings for Bullet Hill. And so I got to go out and do like tastings and talk. And um, that always made people happy that like I wasn't some like schleppy dude right. that knew nothing. Right. <laughs> and then um, I guess there was a lot of that up there. Yeah. Maybe. There's a lot of like yeah. just so like. So you, you became passionate because obviously if you stuck yeah. with it year in, year out, you got a good guy that embraced you. So four years of school comes to an end and working at Bullet. What happens then? Um, so actually I had, you know, I was probably like most college kids. I had no idea what the hell I wanted to do with my life or what I was doing in college. And um, I got done and, uh, you know, I ended up having to move back home. And I didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And I was like, all right, I'm good at this. I'll just go see if I can get a job at the winery. And they were like, well, you really didn't, like, we offered you the assistant winemaking job, and, well, you weren't really interested. So, like, you can work back here. At Bully Hill? Back at Bully Hill. Um, there's, like, I was dating a girl in college, and it didn't work out, and I ended up having to move back home and and turn down that job, basically. Right. And then um, I went to another winery my best friend was working at, which was called so wait, Heron Bully Hill. Hill resented you a little. It's like, dude, we gave you a shot. They, yeah, you fluffed well, us off. Was, so you know, not now. Yeah, and it was my fault. And I, I look back and I'm like, God, I wish I had just taken that job. Like I'd be better, doing better eh, off. Yeah, don't worry about that. But and I love those guys. Like he was like a father, uncle type figure to me. You still talk to him? I talk to him every once in a while, and okay. they're like really uh, encouraging of my success, and I really appreciate what they've done for me. And, um, but then I went to another winery, the same thing. I worked in the tasting room, like, I don't even think a week that time. And, uh, the people that were working in the cell were like, you know, that, that kid's like completely trained and they knew from the bully. Yeah. Thing. The, it was, it's what, a small what place community. was that? That was called Heron Hill. <clears throat> right. Um, which is another it, an, fairly well-known yeah, Lakes winery. And at the time it was a really significant winery. They had a really good winemaker and he was really ambitious. And I think I took a lot of the ambition that I brought to Bellwether from him. You he want, was absolutely crazy. You were on the crazy. right ride with the right guy. Yeah, I mean, and the assistant winemaker quit right before harvest, and I became, like, the de facto assistant winemaker. And he was just batshit crazy, the winemaker. So I was working, you know, I was coming in at 6, going home at 2 in the morning. We'd be just, like, you know, lighting things on fire and burning stuff and making wine in between. So you were doing everything. We were doing everything. So you you learned everything there. Yeah. I, what were what was their specialty? Were they making Rieslings? What 
what, yeah, what so they concentrate on. To Heron Hill at the time, he the guy that I worked for, um, he was Hungarian, and he worked for the Royal Tokai Company, and they recruited him to come over. And so he was really focused on making dessert wines and making at the time at that point too. There was no one had ever received a high score in any of the magazines above an eighty nine. So and dessert wines are famous in France and in Hungary. Yeah. Hungary makes, what's it called, a Tokai? The Tokai, yeah. And it's a very sweet, cloying wine, but it's very yeah. well made. So he came to the Finger Lakes he, he came to make it with what grape? With, uh, at the time, you know, they really didn't have any clue what to make <laughs> really? it with here. But it was Riesling was his primary was. focus. And they were, ma- they were also making some, like, Cab Franc, which I think is kind of crazy. Um, but, like... He did that, but he also taught me how to make, like, a style of dry wines that nobody else was really making. With mostly Riesling? With, with Riesling. That was, at that point... So that was a critical sort of lesson in what you're doing now. Yeah, and there was one night we were just there alone. It was me and him, and we were... We had the the bear, we had the, the wine going, and he he started his fermentations differently than I were learned at other places. So he had a different style, completely different style. And we'll talk about yours later. Yeah. You took on a lot of that, yeah. non conventional stuff. Yeah, and he he showed me this, and it just whatever reason it just stuck in my head. And two years later, I was tasting the wines, and I was like, this is this is completely different, and it's awesome. So the wines lived up to the hype. Yeah, and I think he was a really controversial person. His name was Thomas Laszlo. And um, the mad Hungarian. Yeah, he was literally. It was crazy. Like we could talk like two hours on just crazy stories right. about seller. But he trained me on this, and then um, honestly, we were. There's a big like drinking culture in the industry too. So I ended up having. I left that winery because I was just like drinking too much. Basically, how long were you there? I was there for like two years. And, and when you talk about drinking, not just wine, like just going out after and drinking beer, vodka, whatever. Yeah, yeah like um, <laughs> okay. I was like, I was right out of college. We have to like set kind of the the yeah. tone. And you, so had, you had nothing to worry I had, about. I had nothing. I had like she no came bills. Home at, 10 or 3 in the morning, what was the difference? Well, there was many a days I rolled into the winery from drinking the whole night. And then um, and he was Hungarian. And one of the things about being Hungarian, the culture, is like when you greet someone, when they come in, you have a shot. And oh, boy. So we had like some wines that were distilled in the corner. So they were like 90 proof plus. Oof. And so every morning we would take a shot of that and and you'd start drinking by like Oof. not drinking but tasting, which you end up taking some alcohol in and so, so you realize all this and mm-hmm. after a couple of years you were there at heron hill yep. a couple of years yeah two you years you leave then what happens uh then i have a degree in psychology and i was like I sh- how's I sh- that going yeah it was great yeah. and uh, <laughs> and then um i was like i should use my degree in psychology so i did social work for uh like three months and uh, then I was like, forget this. I want to go right so back. So you worked for like the state or a hospital I wor- or a private? I worked for a company that, um, it was a private company that supplied like uh, That's very kids. funny. Yeah. And. Hey, this is my social worker, Chris. Yeah. He just took a shot at some Hungarian yeah, wine seriously. and sat down with me. Here's your social worker, Chris, working with kids. He needs <laughs> right. to like dry out for a couple right. months before. So that, obviously that goes to the point where it didn't work out, right? Yeah, that I clear, I. <laughs> probably about the same time as it took me from going from a tasting room to a wine cellar or any winery it was about the time I was like this was not a good choice and so I ended up getting a job as a wine rep um, until I could get another assistant winemaking job and that was a really good experience so wine rep selling sales yeah so I ended up I was I Finger ended, Lake Winery no it was actually like um, small family owned California wineries. This was in um, anything of significance yeah, today? Like, yeah, like Hall, um Bon Cristiani. Yeah. Uh, Good stuff. Yeah. So we had this brand called Sensorium, which I really liked, which was John Ritchie. So that was sales. What was the region up there? It was um it was I it, the company was me and the, the guy who owned it. Right. And um my I I could go wherever I wanted in upstate New York and sell wine how did you do and how did you like it uh i did really well okay but uh <laughs> you didn't love it i i realized like i what i would do is when i would be out and this the sales the sales reps in upstate new york are a little different and i'd be looking around and there'd be like the empire and southern guys coming in in right. their suits and just you could tell they were not excited about their lives like toward the end of their careers and 
I did really well at it, and I, and I was being asked to work for some other bigger companies. And but that's not the path you. And wanted. I was like, this is. I want to be making something. I want like a job that I can. But really... that background has to help you owning your own winery. Yeah. You know, with your own distributor or how you it, perceive sales. Right? It helped out a ton. Like I helped out a ton, honestly. Like working in the tasting rooms. I worked in retail the whole during these periods of time too, and doing the winemaking background. It gave me a really rounded um, kind of experience. Right. And I think. You know, a lot of people just go and do winemaking and they don't realize, like, you have to sell this. And how are you going to sell it? And what's different about your product? You can't be in yeah. some wine cellar 24 hours yeah. a day with no tan and no clue. Exactly. And when I went back, I was like, I want to go in the wine cellar. I don't want to talk to anyone. I just want to focus on. So wine. how long did you do the selling and stuff for? I did, I did that as well. Only like six to eight months. And okay. I, I was, I interviewed for that job and an assistant winemaking job within a week of each other. And it took the winery like seven months to decide. So that kind of worked out. Where, yeah. So where'd you wind up? I, I ended up working at a winery called uh, Swedish Hill, which is another like large another winery. well known. Yeah, and the reason all I ended good up places. it was it was good, and they were all big. And then to have that experience to go back to a small winery was really cool. But the reason I ended up there was my one of my best friends, who was the assistant winemaker at Heron Hill. Right before he left, he went to Swedish Hill, and so he brought he told over. me he brought me over at that point, and I was working in the I was. I was still working in the cellar, like, on weekends at Swedish Hill that year before what I What was back. there? Were they Riesling and what uh, were they making? They were everything. They were? Any, any, anything that was great. Were they making the Cab Franks and the oh, Pinots? Oh, yeah. They were making stuff. Cab Franks, Pinots, hybrids, natives. Right. Uh, and they were also making, we were making apple wine, uh, which was interesting. We were making pear wine. Uh, we were doing like that stuff fruit sells cordials. in the tasting room, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like sweet, sweet stuff like that up there, and then um, so that was a really good experience. And I got how to long learn. were you there? I was there for two years. Wow. Yeah, and then or a year and a half, and then I went to, and then from there I went to a smaller winery called Atwater. Right. And that was kind of more geared toward what I was focused was on. Was there an Atwater? Was there a guy named Atwater? That was just the name. Um. It was. It's the name of the winery. The, right. the family that owns it is named Marks, and okay. the guy's name is Ted Marks. And was they, Ted the winemaker? No, Ted was like he his his son in law bought the winery and took it over, and there was kind of a fallout, and he left <laughs> the winery, and then someone else became the winemaker, and then I be and I was like the third assistant winemaker at the time, and or the third person that was the assistant winemaker at the time. How, how long were you there? How'd that work out? Uh, that was good. I mean, it was really, it was really rewarding, and I got to. That's where I started Bellwether as well. But I was there for four years. You made Bellwether at Atwater. Yeah. So part of the agreement. Were you making Atwater at some point? Yeah, I was making Atwater. Were you the winemaker? Or were you always the assistant. Technically? Uh, <laughs> technically, I was the assistant okay. winemaker. But you were doing the heavy lifting. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, well, as like a sous chef at a restaurant right, right. is sometimes there. The, the there's different levels the chefs of sous chefs on TV chefs. cooking yeah. on Good Morning America, and you're doing all that. Yeah, yeah. So I did. I worked pretty hard there. I would say, and then I would. Part of the agreement was I couldn't make my wines t- during my sh- shift, so I would start the day. And you're working 20, 22 hours a day. Yeah, it was crazy. So I would literally like clean all the equipment too. So I would like start the day, clean the equipment, use the day, make Atwater wines. And then I would clean the equipment again and then start my day for Bellwether at night again. So the Bellwether, just let's give everyone a perspective. The, the Atwater and Bellwether thing, what years are we talking about now? Mid-teens? That was 11, 12 Eleven, twelve was at water. You started or doing the bellwether thing. I started doing bellwether eleven and twelve. Okay, I was at Atwater um, from nine on nine to um, fourteen. I think. Oh, so you were there for a while. Yeah, I was there for. I did the 2010, 11, 12, 13, and I think the fourteen vintage. All right, so the first vintage for bellwether was. What year release? So we did um, 2011 Pinot Noir, and then we did two Rieslings in 2012, and we released. So those. there was an 11 and a 12. Yeah, released okay. at the same time, and that was that was something I really wanted to do because I 
wanted to keep the wines back a little bit before I released them. So right. I wanted to make sure that the Pinot had at least a year in bottle before we released it. Now, the it. grapes came from the at-water sources, or you were going out and looking for your own sources? Um, there was... I mean, I'd been grown up there, and there was a lot... Like, I knew who I wanted to work with. Right. And the, actually, the way Bellwether happened was um, just one day... The, the the vineyard Sawmill Creek, which is in Hector, which is where Atwater was, they called and they're like, "We have Pinot. We just handpicked the, the the people decided it's too much. Do you want to buy it?" And offered it to to Atwater, and Atwater said, "Like, no, we're good." You jumped on it, and then I was like, "Can I buy it?" And um, that's a good break. It was it was crazy. It's crazy to think like, you know, five years, six years later. I am where I am because of that, like, one thing. But besides the fact that, by happenstance, the grapes were available, uh-huh. did you perceive that as a good plot? And oh, good yeah. Gra- I mean, they had it going, Sawmill right? Creek was somewhere So I that was a lucky to... break in every sense. Yeah, it was, it was, it kind of was like, honestly, I would have, Riesling's my first passion. Right. And I would have started with Riesling, but because that Pinot came up, I was able to get into working with Sawmill right. Creek and, um... It was really good. It was two barrels. I mean, we're talking 50 cases, and we've grown. Hey, you got to start somewhere. You gotta, yeah, you got to start. Well, before we get into Bellwether, I want to talk to you about a couple things about the Finger Lakes. So the word terroir, you know, is the land, the ground. Burgundy has a different terroir than Bordeaux and Napa. What What is Finger Lakes terroir? You know, what what's going on there that you taste in the grapes as a region? Um and does it vary much? It, to- it totally varies, and that's why I wanted to start the project too. Was when we were doing so. There's 11 lakes. There's a bunch of different soil climates. The way the Finger Lakes was formed was there was it was it was a glacial lake basically, and all the all the lakes aren't actually. Everyone thinks that it's from the the glaciers going in and receding basically and pulling back when it got colder. They're actually old riverbeds. And because of the pressure of the glaciers, they they melted the water on the bottom, and then they were riverbeds that were flowing out to the Atlantic wow. Sea. And so there's a little bit of pulling and in, in dropping of soils, but it's mostly because there was rivers underneath underneath these glaciers. And the whole area at one point was a big lake also. It was like almost a sea. And so we have a lot of like... Uh, fossilized deposits so we have limestones and shales as our subsoils all good for wine right amazing for wine i always like i always say now is it isolated in certain areas or it's distributed and it's site by site well there's like a big block of limestone that goes like kind of across new york state up into ontario and that's where like the people in uh uh niagara and niagara escarpment have their limestone right but then the finger lakes is mostly shale which is like I like to call it like poor man's uh, slate. Basically, if you look at it, good it looks, minerality, right? Yeah, for the wines. It's good minerality. It's really hard soil. There's two types of slate down there. There's black slate and white slate. Black slate's a little more pure, and it's really uncommon actually. And there's some white slate that's really common down there, and that gives the wine some minerality. And but it's really hard. But get back to it. Like the Finger Lakes is is huge. It's like right. Like, to drive across the Finger Lakes takes three hours, and, like, anytime anybody comes up, they're like, we're just going to be going to the next lake. And I'm like, well, then you're not going to be seeing me today because it's right. going to be an hour at least before you get over here. Right. And so I think people don't realize how big it is. And there are 11 lakes, but there's really, for me, there's three that are important, which is Cuca, Seneca, and Cayuga which are the central lakes, and they're the so deepest. So help me, because I haven't been there in a long time, mm-hmm. and, you know, you've inspired me to get up there in yeah, the next definitely. summer. So. But you just named three lakes. Are a lot of the wine-making operations limited to a certain area, or are they spread out th- through those three hours? Yeah, like the lakes, too. Those those are where the ma- majority of the wineries right. are. Like Seneca's in the middle. So they're and, in a re- and, and are those AVAs? Is well, there a, there's a Finger Lakes AVA, which is huge. So tell everybody what an AVA means. So an AVA is an American viticultural area. So it's an area recognized historically. As a wine growing region. Yeah. And right. the crazy thing for me is like I grew up in Hammondsport, which is on Cuca Lake with a K. And it's it has the most history. It has the most grapes that were grown on it. 
but it's not an AVA because really? no one's applied for it. But Seneca Lake and Cayuga Lake are AVAs, and then everything else falls within the, the Finger Lakes AVA. So why don't you apply for... Yeah. You know, I've actually, like, started. I've Come been, on. like, I've been, like up late at night when, with my kids, and I'm just typing in AVA application stuff. I've actually contacted um, the department that, in the government that, that does this, and I've contacted some people on Cuca Lake that have more uh, resources, let's say, than right. me. And, right. And... Because I just want to put Cuca Lake on yeah. a label. Because I, that's I mean, my, that's it, my love. it has a very emotional attachment to you. Mm-hmm. All right. So for your for your wines, the sawmill stuff and all of that. You know, you explain the terroir, shale. There's limestone and all that. What's basically going on with the vineyards that you're working with? What's the characteristics? Um, yeah. So the Finger Lakes is. It's basically every lake is a valley, and there's very different um, soils that go across it, but they have this big slope, and they have a lake that kind of regulates the temperature. It's really cold, too. It's one of the coldest regions to grow wine in. Is it a shorter season because of that, yeah. or it's the same season, but the temperatures are lower? No, so it's, it's a condensed it's, season. It's a much more condensed season, and then what people don't realize, too, is it's really hot in the Finger Lakes at the end of summer in the, in the early, like, August, September. So we're talking like 90s, 90s, 100s. So everything accelerates right at the end. What does that do? Does that increase the sugar? Does that what? What are the effects of a hot end of the summer? On so the uh, you lose acidity for one thing really quickly, Which and you is not gain good sugar for Riesling. No, it's not. But we have so much acidity in the Finger Lakes, right? That it's we don't Be- have as much because as of the soils, because of the soils, and because it's cool, and right. because we have those lakes regulate temperatures throughout the day and night, which are called diurnals. That and so a ninety-four degree day. What's the temperature at night? Sixties. It's it could be sixty. Could be I've, a thirty-point swing. I've seen even bigger than that. Wow. Uh, I've seen like forty-point swings before, wow. which is just insane. And um, so that really, those things really kind of make the wine. So we have all this, particularly for the Riesling, and because the the Finger Lakes wines are known for that bracing acidity. Yeah. For all those reasons. All right. So. That's reflected through all your um, wines. Now, they say that Finger Lakes is a tough place to grow grapes, and I think we just explained a little. Short growing season, a lot of heat spikes. What else? I mean, are there obstacles you deal with every day? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're, like fight, you're fighting hard to make wine in the Finger Lakes. And the main thing is uh, we have a lot of moisture there. And we, so we have all this heat, and then we have high rainfalls and so high moisture. So more moisture than most gr- wine-growing I, regions. I can't think of any region that has more moisture. Right. Because there's no airflow with those lakes with that. With that. So when the morning comes, there's actually a, 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 there's a, there's a thing on the lakes that's fog, and they call it like the, the serpent, basically, and or the snake. And it's the fog that lifts off the lakes, and it sits there for maybe an hour. But as the day goes on, all that moisture goes to the top of the hill and then wow. falls back through. And so it gets stuck in the canopy and the everything. And So mold could be an issue? Mold, mold is the primary issue up there. And that's why you don't see as much organic and biodynamic I was going to ask you that because, yeah. you know, the movement towards raw, oh, crazy. organic, biodynamic, it would be a no-brainer. But the natural circumstances make it harder, right? Yeah. and But that doesn't mean you can't be sustainable and conscientious. Yeah, there's like a lot of sustainable stuff and there's people moving toward biodynamic and organic but i think the trick with that is you gotta you gotta be willing to go in and like pick out your fruit almost grape by grape and that's hard for people to accept is anyone doing that they're like you know fuck it we're gonna be organic and and just kind of fight the fight yeah i mean and they're fighting the fight and like so weimer is they're going for full biodynamic, which is just crazy. Planting ram's horns. Yeah, they got their ram's horns. They've got everything. <laughs> I think Weimer is like always 10 years ahead of everybody else. I think that the younger people in the in the wine industry that are moving in are catching up, but they're always so far. And then Bloomer Creek is, I think they're organic. And everybody else is pretty conventional. But one way around that is we could just grow Riesling and make that Petritus like a benefit to us right. because botrycized wines are viewed as like or the dessert best dessert wines and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, I'll talk to you about some other wineries later, but let's start talking about Bellwether, um, which is your winery. And we talked about, you know, how you got it started. You were at Atwater, you were working at night and all of that. 
Um, you're one of the few wineries that makes only a couple of varieties, or you started, Riesling and Pinot Noir. Yeah. We talked about some other grapes, and you are big into single vineyard designations, right? That's right, yeah. And why Why don't other wineries, you know, do why that? Why are they jumping on it? Um, or why didn't they do it? Like, because the wineries in the Finger Lakes were so focused on selling their wine in the tasting room, it didn't make a lot of sense. It's it's actually hard. It was less art and more commodity or yeah, just product. You, it was you, just product. They had a dry Riesling and a sweet Riesling. And they would, and the thing, this the reason I did it primarily is I was working in all these other wineries. We'd have, you know, 80 <clears> tanks of Riesling from different sites that were all fermented separately. And you go through and taste them and you'd be like, we did the same thing. This tastes different. This tastes different. This tastes different. And then it would come to spring and everyone would be like, well, which one of these is the dry ones and which one's the sweet ones? And you lose the whole identity of that site. And so when I went out, um, when we did Bellwether, I was like, I want to, at first I want to reward the growers for doing something different. And then I want to show like, Cuca Lake is way is just completely fucking different than Seneca Lake, and Seneca Lake is completely different than Cayuga Lake, and the bottom of Cuca Lake is different than the top of Cuca Lake, and 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 nobody really kind of went at that. And one of the things in the wine industry is everybody's like, Alsace has the most diversity of terroir. There's so many different soil types. There's so much, like we would we would blow it away in the you have lakes. that much diversity. Yeah, we have diversity. So from you like, can express that through the wines. We can express that through the wines, basically. Yeah. Um, you kind of make wines like in the old school German way, right? Which, how would you define that? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're kind of a new age wine guy, new guy on the scene, but you're embracing these old. Yeah. yeah well, what is that? Well, and the thing is, I'm doing it. I love Germ- Like, I love German wines. Like, I basically just drink German wines and I drink a little Austrian. Little Gruner here. Yeah. And yeah. Like, because I like the style of production and the mentality. Right. And. The first wine, like when I worked at that taste, when I worked in that cellar, the guy, Greg, every Friday afternoon, we do blind tastings and he just loaded me up. Like so he opened whole, up your world. With yeah. He gave me all these wines. And so we kind of try to emulate that and try to make wines like basically like a German grandfather would. And you're seeing the same thing happen in Germany with wineries like uh, Falkenstein and um, also Julian Hart. And, and as well, like Uli Stein as well, and they're kind of going back. There a was bit. Uh, about a month ago. There's a guy uh, I forgot his last name. Stefan does Riesling Fire. Did you yeah. come down to that? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a there, there's some great growers and a big dinner. It's like the La Pauli of you know Riesling. Yes, it's it's, it's very cool. You know, the diversity of winemakers and all that. Um, so Stephen's actually my distributor. Is he? Yeah. Is Stephen Von Boden? Yeah, Von Boden's my distributor. I didn't realize that. Okay. And, um, uh, it's that's like the biggest compliment I've ever had is him coming down and being like, "I want to represent your wine." So that's it's nice. like you and all these German wines. Basically. I, I didn't know that. that yeah. you know they they were connected and all of that. Um, all right, so Riesling, great food wine, great acidity. The Pinots. I mean, you've been compared to some Jura wines and all of that. Yeah. So how would you describe? the styles of the wines that you make is it based on the site or because i want to get into your winemaking technique yeah which it'll get way too nerdy for our <laughs> exactly. listeners exactly there's mean, so much shit going the, on the one with thing what you I was ate told, with oxygen on the cat you know the one thing i was told is like no no one knows what the hell you're talking about when you talk about winemaking so just like keep it simple but today. like Half the guys in the world don't even do yeah. what you do. No, I mean what we do is very different, and what we why? do. Why? If 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 you embrace the old German winemaking tradition, and then when you got to making the wines, you, I wouldn't say experimental, but you had an idea of how you want to make wines. Like, just give me some examples of yeah. what you do that people don't do. Um, like in the Finger Lakes, in particular, one of the one of the things I do is I bottle my wines really late in the year right so like i still have a 2015 uh riesling in tank that i have that is going to get bottled the next couple weeks so that's two two years on the lees uh which everybody else bottles like now so you hand pick everything your fermentation is slow and you bottle late yeah and 
and we which do is a not lot of typical. Other, no, and I mean we use like it's what I like when I start when we started our wines in the Finger Lakes, we were completely different than everybody else. And when I released the wines initially, people were like, "You're ruining the reputation of the Finger Lakes." So you got some shit for that. Yeah, I got. I mean, I was like really embedded in the wine culture, winemaking culture, and now I'm like a black sheep. Like a lot of people hate me that like. Uh, because I don't make wines in the Finger Lakes way, and because we've gotten some attention, and and that was part of me being young and being like, I'm going to go out and do it my way, and I'm fucking right, and you're wrong, and I'm going to show you that. So I'm right. what what's the consequence? I mean, the consequence is just local. I yeah. mean, in New York, you know, we were talking earlier. Sommeliers love the wine. You know, it's a great representation of the Finger Lakes. It's just a local political thing. Yeah, it's there's like. Oh man, I, I, it's very political. Like it's the wine industry is really incestuous in yes. Finger Lakes and everywhere, really. And what I did was not part of that. Was everyone was like, "Oh yeah, he's good. He's well trained. He has a good palate." And then I went out and I would taste the wines, and everyone would be like, "They're too reductive. They're too closed up. There's not enough fruit. There's too mineral, too much minerality. You need to add sugar to them." And then. I would say no. I'm not. You're not do a that. big sugar or sulfur guy, right? No, I, I mean honestly, like I like sulfur because I think it's part of uh, making German style white wines. Right. But I've never added any sugar to any of my wines. I think that's one of the differences. Like when I go out and do my picking, like there's an intention of what that wine's going to be when when it goes to bottle, and a lot of people pick based on the chemistry of the wine, and I don't care as much. I care more about flavor and then what the development of the wine is, the grapes are. So your whole approach is different. My, yeah, basically like... Um, so to this day, you're still getting crap up there? Yeah. Eh, <laughs> screw them. Yeah. Listen, you're on the right track. I mean, the people that know wine know you're making a good product. Yeah, and there's a lot. And of- by the way, it's not like Finger Lakes was like burning a path to great wines. No. You know? So, you know, they, they should give you some kudos for but that. But the, the thing is with that, too, I learned everything I know from them. Like, I have the skills to go out and take these risks because those guys taught me the fundamentals. Right. And I think right. that's really Everything important. led up to what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so, at Bellwether, you make... God, like a half a dozen or more Rieslings, a bunch of Pinots. You brought in a yeah. rosé and all of that. So you make a bunch of Rieslings, a bunch of Pinots, and you make them from, what, three, four, five different sites? Um, yeah, it kind of shifts. We contract with the growers. We try to get really long contracts. And then I try to do at least three pickings from each site. So in 2000, um, 2015, we had four sites, and I did 16 pickings. And... Um, it's a lot for up there. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, so even though you're an outlier and a pain in the ass and a renegade, these guys still want to sell you grapes. Yeah, because I treat them well. <laughs> yeah, well, that, I think part, I think if you're going to do that, you got to and you appreciate them. Yeah, and, and they, I t- they and I know that. And I think too, for a long time, nobody kind of talked about them growing the grapes. It was all about like what did it, like as the winemakers like what it, look what I did, and then the growers are like like the peasants not getting the crumbs, and I made, right. I wanted to make sure. The growers got some. That's always, you know, that's a sustainable yeah, sort totally. of attitude, you know, for the long run where everyone participates. Um, all right. We're going to take a break in a few minutes, but there's a couple areas I want to cover before we break. So you are trying to make or you're making a sparkling wine? Yeah. Um, is it a pet nat or is it a sparkling or is it both? <laughs> um, well, I've done pet nat. And, uh, Explain to everyone what a pet nat so is. So pet, pet nat means petillant natural. A French and, term. Yeah, so naturally sparkling, basically. Champagne is fermented twice. Champagne's fermented and twice. And pet nat is, is a one primary fermentation. Right, but it's a fizzy wine. Yeah, it's a fizzy wine. And um, I kind of got obsessed with the idea in 2013 and started doing that. It, but part of me too growing up in the Finger Lakes like the Finger Lakes was sparkling wine for the United States like pre-prohibition and and we kind of lost that after prohibition and I and I myself and a couple and a bunch of other people are really kind of trying to embrace it now like that we could make some of the best sparkling wine outside of champagne and why aren't we trying so to do it So you want to hone in on that a little Yeah so What are the grapes 
So, I mean, I make all of mine with uh, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, a little bit of Pinot Noir. Like a champagne blend. Yeah, exactly. You could do a Blanc de Blanc. You could do a mix. Yeah, and I want to make sure that, like, if we're doing it, there's, like, a a standard, uh, like, a a variable that's that's equivalent so that you can kind of see what's different, basically. So is this something you're going to concentrate on, and from here on in, we're going to start seeing, um, you know, some sparkling releases from Bellwether? Yeah, I mean, this actually, it's kind of funny we're talking about it because this year will be the first release of sparkling wines from Bellwether. Which will be what vintage year? Uh, 2013. So, <laughs> slow to pick. Yeah. Long fermentation. Yeah. Long release. Long so, two, so, at the end, we'll give everybody all the vitals, but there'll be a 2013 Bellwether sparkling wine. Yeah, exactly. There. And then there's some, there's Petnat available right. as well. Which is kind of uh, just something I want to Is Petnat easier and quicker to make than the sparklings or not necessarily? It's quicker. It's actually like out of all the wines I make, it's the hardest wine. Is it? Yeah, because you, it's like you're, wa- you're, wa- you're riding a wave. you got to catch it, right? you got to put it in a bottle when the sugar's right. So literally, like, you're monitoring it constantly. And you're bo- like most of the time when you bottle, you prep for a, a little bit. But right. when you bottle sparkling wine, and it's in harvest typically, when you bottle Pet Nat, it's like go go to bottle you're going to bottle like eight like eight hours if nobody's available i'll bottle the thing by myself basically and so down the road the sparkling wine will be more of an effort and more releases than the pet net do you think or not necessarily they'll probably uh probably be a little bit more it's never going to be really significant right compared to everything else but it's something you want to do it's something i want to put your signature on it yeah um all right, Chris met a girl up in the uh, Finger Lakes, and he was too shy to ask her out. So eventually, he figured out. You know, he got drunk and asked her out. I, I'm shortening the story, <laughs> but it turns out her family was a fairly well-known cider-making um, outfit, which carried the name Bellwether, right? Yep. Which you, you know, extended to your wine line, so. Bellwether and New York State are pretty well known for ciders, and yeah. you've had your hand in that. So let's just talk about cider for a few seconds before we take a break. What? So cider is made how? Obviously with apples. Yeah, um, cider is made with apples. It can a lot of cider is made with concentrate apples, and then they blend water back and then do the fermentation. You do apple apples? No, we concentrate. do we do apple apples and. Um, the Finger Lakes in New York State has a long history of making hard cider. But my father-in-law really... Uh, the term bellwether means, like, someone that's a f- leader in a group or a forethinker. Like the lead sheep or whatever. Yeah, it yeah. T- comes exactly from that. Right. And, I mean, he literally wrote, like, the federal definition of hard cider. He So he was an early, he was one influential of the, guy in the cider? Yeah, post-prohibition, again, right. when we lost all... Or post when beer became popular... But we lost all the cider. He was one of the. He's actually the first winery in New York State to apply. That's a winery just that was focused on making cider. Um, there was nobody else making cider wow. in the Finger Lakes when he did it. What, what year are we talking about? Not that long. Nineteen ninety nine, and. Um, and but around the country, was it going on or not it as was, much? I mean, there was pockets here and there. But and it wasn't a full-blown thing then. No. So it, would you say the last seven, eight years, the cider thing has blown yeah, up? Yeah, it's crazy. When we start, when I met my wife, like, you could kind of, like, count how many cideries there were in really? the U.S. on your hands. And now, like, every time I go on social media or an in internet or read something or go to New York... There's like a new cider, or right. there's like like, and the thing is too, it's like craft beer, craft cider. Yeah, you know, everybody's crazy. Like got their They're hand just in it. it. And actually, the town I live in now, Trumansburg, I believe we have the most cider producers in any town in the United really? States. Yeah, which is crazy. So with wine, you put yeast in, and that converts the sugars to alcohol. Am I correct with yeah, that? Yeah. With cider to make it hard. Uh huh. What are you doing with the apples to make it? Alcoholic. So it's the same process. It's yeast. Yeah, it's it's yeast that's indigenous convert- or just added or whatever. Some of those we use indigenous, and some we're using commercial because that's kind of like the style they had developed. And um, the thing for me, everybody thinks like cider and beer, and when I think about it, the first ingredient in beer is water. 
right. and then it's grain, and you have to heat it to extract the sugars and blah, 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 and then you can ferment it. When you're making cider... Apple juice. The, the first ingredient's apples, and that's the main thing, and so it's more like wine for me, and it's more like sparkling wine, and the thing for me that's crazy is ciders are typically valued a lot cheaper than, than wines are, and... You're working with the, the same the products. effort and the yeah. But I, I got to tell you, your ciders. I mean, you make a bunch. Yeah, you, there's some cool names, some cool labels. Yeah. And they ain't like seven, eight dollars a bottle. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're to your point, they're crafted as well as wine. Yeah, and, and they drink like that. The, and there's a big move right now in the cider industry that that they're the thing is cider as wine or orchard cider or grower cider, and. I think it's really good because they're embracing that they are actually a wine product and right. not as much a beer product. Well, and it's agricultural. It's yeah. a fruit. Grapes are fruit. Apples are fruit. Just different style. All right, we're going to break. But one last question I always ask everybody. How important is social media to what you're doing? Do you use it to promote the brand? Do you use it for discovery? Yeah. Uh, we, we wouldn't be where we are without social media. Like, Do you think it helped it, get yeah, your I mean, name we out had, there? Yeah, I mean, we had... When we started, the wines were like a second thought, and it was literally my like, at the time, Twitter and now Instagram and and a little bit of Facebook, and just so you recognized that you jumped on it. Yeah, we jumped on you it. You got all the free benefits for being exactly. proactive. You know, and I I always say this like we don't spend anything on our marketing budget except for me putting pound symbol behind a <laughs> Instagram thing. Right. So like I you. can I can go to New York or I can go to Montreal and eat and drink like and socialize and that's our marketing budget and that's kind of the way I well I'd that's rather. important yeah. you know you're the face behind all of that all right we're gonna take a quick break you're listening to Chris Matheson Chris is the winemaker and proprietor of Bellwether Wine Cellars when we come back from the break we're gonna subject Chris to our wine list. And then Chris brought a whole bunch of bottles that we've been drinking, but we're going to officially taste them on the air during our weekly wine sip. So we'll be back in a minute. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. Dine in Brooklyn is a 10-day event featuring restaurants in the greatest borough on planet Earth. Taking place Monday, March 20th through Thursday, March 30th, Dine in Brooklyn is celebrating the five-star flavors that make Brooklyn a must-taste destination. From the Asian-inspired flavors at Nightingale 9 in Carroll Gardens to classic barbecue at Mabel's Smokehouse in Williamsburg, the Brooklyn restaurant scene is something for everyone. Unwind with a bottle of vino at Soigne Restaurant and Wine Bar in Park Slope, dream of summer at Clemente's Crab House in Sheepshead Bay, or be transported to a gothic Irish monastery while drinking a Guinness in hand at the Wicked Monk in Bay Ridge. Restaurants are offering their choice of $28 prefixed three-course dinners, $15 two-course lunches, or $12 weekend brunch. Visit DineInBK.com to view all of the participating restaurants and their menus. Make your reservations now to discover the diversity of flavors that Brooklyn has to offer. Dine In Brooklyn is taking place Monday, March 20th through Thursday, March 30th. Learn more at DineInBK.com. Back with our guest, Chris Matheson from Bellwether Wine Cellars from the Finger Lakes in upstate New York. He got on a bus today to visit, visit us and talk to us live. So now we're going to subject Chris to our wine list, which we ask all our guests. And Chris, don't ponder over these questions too much. Just, you know, kind of flow through them. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? I don't mean the second, but like what's interesting you... What do you keep trying? Something new? What's on the table? Um, yeah, I'm like the most boring drinker now. As I got as I've gotten older, I just keep drinking the same thing basically. But I drink a ton of Riesling. Um, you German Riesling, pretty Austrian. much German. So Austrian, you like to Domestic. taste as much Riesling? Yeah, I taste 
anytime I can taste reasoning, I view it as something that's important. But I drink a ton of Chablis also. Okay. Because that the minerality and the way that they're made are really interesting to me. So Chablis and Riesling. Yep. So you're you're leaning on those whites. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about your favorite wine and food pairing. I mean, I'm afraid of the answer. Like Finger Lake answer. It's like Lake Trout yeah. and Cabernet Franc. So give me your favorite wine and food pairing. Um, you know, I've listened to the show and everybody says pretty much the same thing. And champagne. It's, for, it's and champagne. Champagne and popcorn or ch- potato yeah, fried chips chicken. for me. Yeah. I, it's, but is that you? I love that. Yeah. I mean, so you you drink champagne when you can. Uh, it's, if I can afford champagne, I'm going to drink it. Okay. And like. So I drink I drink champagne I drink uh, Beaujolais I drink Rieslings and but that's, pair foods with me yeah like uh, if you you know the kids are asleep you got a little date night you're cooking you'll pull out what and pair it with what uh, it's funny because my wife doesn't really drink that much but um, <laughs> I I I like to kind of make my food based on what I want to drink so I'll like cook like I actually think like. My style of Pinot or Gamay from Beaujolais go really well with like tartare. So I drink, I eat a ton of tartare actually. You and make then, your own tartare? Yeah, I beef mean, tartare. Yeah, beef. Uh, we do. Wow. I'm pretty. I'm pretty into cooking. So good for you. Yeah. All right. Favorite. Let's do. See if you can answer this two ways because it would help. Favorite wine restaurant and or bar so let's do two answers let's do new york because okay. you know this is an important market you're in and out of here and i have no friggin idea about the finger lakes but you'll give me a oh, finger, finger lakes, lakes. Like, yeah so give me your favorite <laughs> give me a good wine bar restaurant in new york that does food and wine service well um one of the best meals an experience I've had lately was uh, Rebel for brunch. Okay. And it's half off bottles. Comes up a lot. So great. And then um, I really liked, I really love the food at the Four Horsemen. In and Brooklyn. The, yeah. Great so place. That's really. Both that, of them are great wine places, wine people. Yeah. Rebel has a one-star Michelin chef. Yeah. Dan- Four Horsemen's Daniel Eddy. Four Horsemen's yeah. not far behind. They no, just had Horsemen's. Thomas Keller cooking there a couple yeah, of weeks Yeah, it's crazy. Ago. I think their food's really amazing. Those are two good choices. Now, in the Finger Lakes, <laughs> Denny's? I mean, what do you got? Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I mean, I think, like, with you see the change in the, the wines that are being made in the Finger Lakes, there's changes in the restaurants. So... Um, they're up in the food scene a little. Yeah, they're. I mean, because if we want to bring in people, like they don't want to be. So eating what's Denny's. what's a good? Pl- what's so your like, favorite place or a good place? I go. I like to go to. In if I'm in Ithaca, I go to this place called Just a Taste, which is kind of like a tapas and big okay. wine bar. And then in Watkins Glen, a place called Graft, which is really cool. like a wine bar. Yeah, place? it's a wine bar. It's focused on Finger Lakes wines and then local food. And then Finger Lakes Table is really cool up in Geneva. Good choices, and yep. I'm sure you're right on those. All right, so favorite all-time wine. What's the wine? Is it a birth wine? Is it the first wine you tasted with one of your winemaker guys? Is it something you went, you know, to an event? Um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, there's a lot of wines that stick out, but there's... You can give me a couple. Yeah, and the one that really sticks out is, the like, going to those, going to that tasting with the winemaker and... Him giving me it was like uh, a Spotlaza Doctor Doctor Birkeland Wolf from like nineteen. So Spotlaza is a type of German wine. Yeah, S P A T A L E S E or something. Yeah, is that a sweet or a dry? Well, that one was uh, that one was a little sweeter. And uh, and who was the maker? It was uh, Doctor Birkeland Wolf, and this was in okay. the mid. Uh, this was like a 90s wine that I was tasting in like the so early 2000. Wine. So that was really special. And then actually the, one of the wines that mattered most to me was um, a really o- an older bottling of, uh, oh my God, I'm going to lose it now, but um, uh, Lo- uh, Heyman Lowenstein. And it was a dry later harvest wine from like the early 90s as well. And So later harvest is usually sweet, but it was a drier? Yeah, it was a dry style, so it was really rich. And it had all those like dried aromatics that you'd expect, like dried fruits and honeys and things. And then, then it was cool. like bone dry. With So do you ever drink like Cali Cabs or Burgundy or Bordeaux? Yeah. I mean, you, you haven't brought up one red wine in like an hour. I know, I know. I'm, I'm most... 
I like red wine. I just like kind of love white wine. You gravitate towards what? No, you but like. I, I do like some stuff that's being done. I love Burgundy, but I, right. like it's expensive. I can't afford it, it's and expensive. I love a lot of Oregon stuff, and that's great too. All the uh, like when Patrick Cappiello comes in, I'm yeah. going to ask him. Like I've asked every other guest, how can my listeners drink Burgundy and not, you know? pay you know crazy numbers yeah i mean you know what i think if you do bourgogne rouge bourgogne that's rouge. one way and then if you there's if Cru you go Beaujolais. you go to Cru Beaujolais, yeah because nobody that's what th- comes up and then the other thing is too like some of the outer outer regions like cote de chalonnaise yep. and irancy irancy is awesome for me and there's more acid in irancy than there yep, is in, that's in, that's the way to drink yep. it cheap all right th- this is one of my favorite questions my son ben is sitting here he's going to a party He's bringing a couple of bottle of wines, and you may be able to handle this pretty well. Give me your best wine around fifteen bucks retail. Give me a white. Give me a red. Uh, for white. First of all, you brought a rosé that's nineteen bucks. Yeah. So that's not way off. So, so that's th- what I'm thinking. Yeah, I mean everybody loves me- rosé, right? Okay, so, so we'll so, so rosé. But I was gonna say um, Beaujolais Blanc. Uh, white Beaujolais, white Beaujolais, Chardonnay. fifteen bucks, 20 fifteen to twenty bucks easy. on the white side. Yeah, I think that's the first time anybody's ever said a Beaujolais Blanc. Yeah, and a lot of people are really getting into those now, and I really love them. All um, right, so give me a red now. Red's hard because I drink Post Mipino. Um, you know, let's do a red grape, and then that's make fine. Rosé, because a lot of people say Muscadet. Yeah. Because it's a good food wine. There's some good makers. Some people. So give me a red. Give me a grape. Um, I would just get anything. Like I would get a Pinot Noir, a Cab Franc. Honestly, I'm going to go back to Finger Lakes too because I think those are like absurdly affordable. Good values. Yeah. Okay. Rosés. All right. Last question, and this one's specific to you. Who else is making good wines in the Finger Lakes? If you had to give a shout out yeah. to some either friends or guys doing it right, give me a couple other names. Everybody's going to be like, what? Uh, why didn't you <laughs> say my name? But I think Weimer, they've been really they've inspirational been to me. Um, That's th- a fair answer. And I think um, beyond that, Nathan Kendall, Ian Barry, uh, both their names are on there. Smaller guys Smaller like guys. you. Smaller guys. Right. Chris Bates as well. I think he's making some interesting stuff. Gloomer Creek. So with the old, there's new, there's large, there's small and all of that. Mm -hmm. All right. Those are all good choices. We're going to move to our weekly wine sip. Every week we taste a different wine on air. For our weekly wine sip, Chris was nice enough. I asked him to bring down one wine. He brought three down. (laughs) So we're going to start with a 2014 Sawmill Creek Vineyard Dry Riesling, one of his best, one of his favorite wines. The wine retails, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, for around 23 bucks. Yep. You can get it at better restaurants at a restaurant price, of course. And, you know, there's some cool wine stores that carry it. Um, Chris also has a mailing list. This particular wine, I think, is sold out. Yeah. But if anyone is interested in Bellwether Wines and wants to contact, get on a mailing list or find out more, where do they go? They could go to um, uh, bellwetherwinecellars.com okay. or, or they could just go to cidery.com and just write us. And so Bellwether is B-E-L-L-W-E-T-H-E-R, yeah. bellwether.com. Yep. And Cidery, which is, we talked a little yep. about the S not a C-I-D-E-R-Y that's correct dot com and all that so if you're interested in more information in the wines and all that alright so Chris we're going to start with the 2014 14 Sawmill Creek Vineyard let's give it a sh- well let's look at it first so it's pretty pale colored it's not it's not very hued it's no. you know it's pretty I wouldn't say clear but you know light yellow give me some descriptors on the nose <laughs> this is really hard because it's my own wine um, well, you better. You, bet, you got a little minerality. You have some uh, touching on stone fruit, and then you have a lot of palm fruit. So, like, apple, quince, and then you're getting into a little bit of, like, the white peach and things like which, that. Which are somewhat classic Riesling descriptors. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing out of the ordinary that you brought up, right? No, I mean, and then I think for this one, too, minerality, a little chalkiness on it, particularly on the palate. So um, let's let's throw it over the tongue. I think right away you get that acidity mm-hmm. nice you know not not effervescent but you know you can feel it on the tongue yeah it's got a good medium mouth feel um give me some palate descriptors um you know i think 
this is one of those wines where the nose carries onto the palate. And then I think you get, uh, so you get like the, the same fruit, but you get more lingering texture on the wine and a little different weight than I think you'd expect from the nose. You expect a little lighter. Yeah, no, a little the weight more, is great. Yeah. The, it definitely and, lingers a little. And a little bit of chalkiness on it. Um, I think that's a good good thing in minerality as yeah. well. Um, what foods would you pair this wine with? Uh, you know, I've always thought that these like dry, austere Rieslings would go really awesome with like something like a really charred steak because you have that kind of like minerality and charriness and to acidity, it and acidity, a white that could hold up. Yeah, to it. and then have that like if that's you put, not classic. It's but not that's classic a, at all. That's a cool pairing. Yeah, I think it'd be really cool with like. A steak with like a Bernays sauce with this wine. This would hold up. Would, to it would the hold sauce. up. Yeah, I'm pretty. I would be pretty psyched about that. All right, so that is the 2014. I keep throwing my New York accent in. 14, <laughs> uh, 2014 Sawmill Creek Vineyard Dry Riesling. Now let's try. We've been drinking the Pinot. We'll come back to that, but let's try the rosé. Okay. Now, have you been making rosé from the beginning? Uh, Chris? Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. It's we, okay. We, um, rosé was something I always wanted to do, and it, it was about our third year, and we made rosé. And, and it's rosé from Pinot grapes, it's right? It's Pinot Noir rosé. It's, 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 it's acre contracted. It's completely hand-picked, intentionally so, picked for rosé. Um, and then made a little more simply, so it ferments a little quicker in bottles. So this is a 2016 Rosé of Pinot Noir. Yeah. It's about 19 bucks, which yep. is a great value, retail. Um, all right, let's give it a sniff. It's got a faint, pale pink color. Yeah. The It's a very aromatic nose. It's aromatic, but I need you to tell me what I'm smelling. So for me, with this wine, you get like um, a lot of strawberry, mm. a lot of um, kind of curranty cranberry type fruit, but very red, very red, and and not like a super dark red, but kind of like right. in between there, and um, not plummy or black cherry, yeah, but the red raspberry, strawberry. raspberry cherry, strawberry, like yeah. what you want in a rosé, really, yeah. and. Um, and then, yeah, you get a little bit of that. There's some carbonic on there as well, which For nobody sure. does. And, For uh, sure, um, which I like. Yeah, it's, and I think that, that lifts good acidity, it up. Carbo- yeah. you know. Yeah. It's, it's dry and, what am I trying to say? There's a sweetness to it that's not yeah. annoying. I mean, the fruit is is nice and sweet and all yeah. that, but it's dry and it's got that acidity and all. Exactly. I think um, you want rosé that has, like, really bright vibrant like present fruit basically so on the palate i'm getting the same stuff i'm getting red fruit strawberries what yeah. else uh again i think on the palate you get a little bit of like this greenness on the palate so maybe not like green like bell pepper or anything like that but green like some herbs and spices more so and those are coming from some of the stem inclusion on the the carbonic part portion so of it so you it's it's full stem and clusters or yeah uh, I always like try to make a simple rosé, and then I can't do anything simple. So there's some right. cluster carbonic, and then there's some just regular, just pressed off really quick. We could do and, a whole show on your cockamamie yeah, wine exactly. procedures and lose everybody and all of that. Yeah. Um, how long have you been making the rosé? Uh, so we've been doing rosé for, we did it uh, three of the past four years. We couldn't, we just couldn't get the fruit one year. And um, like I sell out almost upon release of it so so i would say because i've drank a lot of rosé i would say it's a terrific rosé love the nose love the acidity um it's not a super dry rosé even though it has some dryness because i think the fruit comes out so if you like that kind of style i mean it's it's a home run anyway but yeah you know rosés vary all right, so the last wine Chris brought in, we basically drank the bottle, and Dave and Vitor engineers basically took a straw and finished it up. But they should come in and get some rosé, too. Um, we tasted the rosé, which is a very finessed, restrained... Mm-hmm. Um, not the rosé, the Pinot yeah. Noir. It's 
Let's talk about color. It's a it's pale for a rosé. Yeah. Um, but it's got the body. Yep. Um, talk ro- to me about the nose. So the, the Pinot Noir is like the most complicated one out of all the wines. It's the most finicky grape, it's right? It's super hard and there's a ton of work. But um, for me, you kind of get these, again, you get more light red fruits and nice acidity. Um, on the nose, you get... There's a lot of stem inclusion, so you get the nose of, changed since yeah, we it's poured it. Opened up a lot. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's much rich, richer and more open and all of that. So the the nose is again uh, strawberry, red, red raspberry, currants, things like that. I think, and then you get a little bit of this like kind of foresty bossois, like forest floor stuff and mushroom as well. And then um, yeah, it does. It does have those. Yeah, there's a complexity there and all of that. So the the Pinot Noir is like the um, like the Riesling. It's a Sawmill Creek vineyard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more costly as far as the other wines, yeah. but Pinot Noir falls in there. It's about thirty two bucks, which for this wine is a great value. Yeah. at retail, um, and you can get it in restaurants. Uh, Chris and I, we do the show right here from Roberta's, and Roberta's through the years has supported Bellwether, and it's a bunch of other restaurants. Um, what what are some of the other restaurants that? Uh, honestly, like um, I'm kind of embarrassed by it, but we've been very successful in New York City, and I'm very okay. proud of that. So don't uh, be you'll you'll find Bellwether at the cooler, you know, restaurant. Yeah, we've we've. It's been crazy. It's beyond my wildest dreams yeah. how people have embraced us, basically. Well, we're, we're glad to hear that. All right. We're going to thank you for coming on. We're going to wrap up, Chris. If you have a question, a wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation. Follow us on Facebook, The Grape Nation. Follow us on Instagram at sbenruby. And follow us on Twitter at benruby without the S. We want to thank our guest, Chris Matheson, from Bellwether Winery in the Finger Lakes up in uh, New York State. We want to thank our engineer, Vitor, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. Chris, before we leave, I just want to go back and say that if anybody wants more information on Bellwether, they go to bellwether.com. Uh, bellwetherwinecellars.com. Bellwetherwinecellars.com or Cidery, C-I-D-E-U. That's correct. Yep. D-E-R-Y. Yeah, I know, right? Um, And you'll get all the information. If you're smart because of this show, you'll go on the website, get on the mailing list, and whatever's left you can grab. And down the road, you know, maybe you'll be at the top of the list. I'll be the guy answering all the emails, too. Yeah, Chris is... He, he's like a jack of all cra- trades. So, Chris, thank you for making the trip down. Um, thank you for enlightening us about Finger Lakes Wines. Thank you for enlightening us about your project. And thank you for giving us a chance um, to taste everything. Everything was great. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you have been listening to The Grape Nation. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.